everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast where we talk about the Dhamma, kind of like a call-in radio show. Questions are welcome in the chat. Chatting is tolerated in the chat for the first part. Talk about, and you're welcome to ask questions, and they will be collected by our volunteers, who will then sort them and categorize them and present them, and I'll answer them in the second half. There's no video for this session. You know, that's somewhat uh, disappointing sometimes. We're used to seeing. We're very visual beings. And we want to see things. It's curious how the tradition is not to have the visual connection during teaching. As I've said many times, in the time of the Buddha, and since the time of the Buddha, the tradition has always been to, for the teacher to put a fan in front of their face as a symbol of the impersonal nature of the teaching. Because the important thing is not your relationship with the teacher, but your relationship with the teaching. How the teaching affects you, not how the teacher affects you. It's very easy to be affected by a teacher, to be affected by someone who isn't teaching even beneficial things, potentially. So, most important always is not to focus on the person, to focus on the quality. During this session, it's recommended that you have your eyes closed. You take this as a session of practice where you take the time to practice the teachings, to, to discover the truth within yourself. It's the thing, the, the, the truth doesn't come from paratogosa, doesn't come from someone else's, the sound of someone else's voice. The best I can do is point the way the best the Buddha could do, Akataro Tathagata, the Buddhas, even the Buddhas, were just guides. They just pointed the way. You yourself must do the do the work. So today I'll talk a little bit about the Dhammas that make one memorable. And I had a little bit of concern before this session that I might be translating it wrong. So we understand that it looks like there are two different ways of translating this word. Saraniya. Saraniya. But the simplest way is to understand that it comes from the word sarana. Sarana means an object of remembrance. Saraniya means something that is worth being an object of remembrance, or a person worth remembering. These are dhammas that, according to this translation, lead people to think of each other, to think fondly of each other.
that lead to friendship, memorable friendship, that make people appreciate each other, that lead to harmony. Very important dhammas. They're not deep insight meditation teachings. But they certainly do relate to insight, to vipassana meditation. They do relate to enlightenment quite directly. And they absolutely support one's practice of Satipatthana meditation. The Buddha taught these these teachings to the monks at Kosambi, which is a very famous example of discord, where the monks were not thinking fondly of each other. Uh, they didn't appreciate each other. They had separated into two groups and were fighting. They were at each other's throats. They were at each other's throats over something so insignificant. One monk had left some water in a, in a pot. The other monk accused him of an offense and then said maybe he hadn't committed an offense and the first monk was confused and so he left without confessing it. The other monk said he, he, he hadn't confessed his offense and so he told his students and his students told the other monk's students and the other monk's students told the monk, hey, that monk says you still have, haven't confessed your offense. And the monk said, oh, that monk's a liar. And those students told the other students who told the teacher and all oh, they started a war, and the monks were of two camps at each other's throats. Maybe not literally. But what the story shows, I think, quite well is how irrational anger not only can be, but I think always is. It shows how irrational we become. If you ever held a grudge against someone or seen someone, had someone hold a grudge against you, it's quite remarkable how irrational it is. Maybe even more remarkable how painful and harmful it is, how unbeneficial it is. If you ever see people who go through a bitter divorce and both sides lose money and resources and time and hair on their head. And it seems that they've done something not only useless, useless but directly harmful. Anger blinds us. Anger, greed, they blind us. We tend to be goal-oriented and we put the goal above the process by any means, right? When we know what our goal is, we are often prepared to do things, say things, think things in order to get it that end up destroying us, end up making the, the end goal irrelevant. Buddhism is all about process. It's an example of, this is an example of how that is, how true and important that is. And it goes with meditation as well. That's The ends never justify the means. 
the ends end up being only a product of the means, never more. There's no end that out, uh, outweighs the means, because, of course, the ends are always a product of the means. There's no such thing as ends that are not a product of the means. And so trying to achieve the same results with two different means, on, on a karmic level anyway, on a karmic level, meaning to do, to do with anger or without anger, you can't accomplish the same result. If you act with anger or without anger, the, the result will be intrinsically different on a very important level. So, in order to avoid this sort of thing and to remind the monks that they weren't actually accomplishing anything of any value, the Buddha taught the six sarana dhamma. It didn't really work for these monks, but it was a great teaching nonetheless, and it worked very well for those people who were able to listen, which, which in my mind all of you are. So in order to help support and give something of benefit to our community, those people who, want, who listen to these talks and who are involved with our Discord server, volunteers and so on, and past and present meditators, maybe future meditators, I present these to you in order to create harmony, make us think well of each other, make us think fondly of each other. So the first three are, are three facets of the same activity. They involve the cultivation of what we call metta. Metta means friendliness. It comes from the word mitta. Mitta means friend, literally. Metta is the state of being a friend, literally what it means. So metta doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't actually mean love. It doesn't have anything that means love, though you can, you can derive the concept of love from it in, in one form of the word, of the, of, the, of the concept. But literally, it just means friendliness. Which gives us a good idea of what it means. I don't know if you, that's the whole crux of it. These monks were not very friendly to each other. And as a result, their students weren't very friendly to each other. And even the lay people in the monastery were at odds with each other, split into two groups. Even the angels, they say, were split into two groups. The spirits in the monastery had taken two, two sides. Not very friendly. So the first three are friendliness towards each other, friendliness in our physical acts, the way we act towards each other, friendliness in our speech, and friendliness in our thoughts. These three go together, body, speech, and thought. These are the three doors in Buddhism. A very important classification for, just for practical purposes. It simplifies things quite dramatically to think of us as having three doors by which we perform ethical and unethical deeds. So some of our actions are physical. We might hit someone or push them or make a lewd exp uh, what a lewd make a, uh, a me what is the word an a coarse or rude expression with our hands no uh, we might simply act in such a way that is unfriendly like stomping around folding our crossing our arms across our chest frowning even the act of furrowing your eyebrows can be an act of unfriendliness, turning your head away, plugging your ears, stomping out of the room. All of these are unethical acts. Yeah. You can say, oh, I'm keeping the five precepts, so I'm perfectly ethical, and you'd be fooling yourself. If you walk, if you stomp around with anger, 
you walk with anger, it's unethical walking. Unethical walking. So cross your arms across your chest. If you do it with anger, that's an unethical act. And of course, this this also includes the more obvious friendly and unfriendly acts of, of actually doing things for each other. Based on our kindness, our friendliness, we think of each other, we're thoughtful, and we act thoughtfully by giving things to each other, helping each other with each with our work. You see someone doing something, you go and help them. There were these three monks who lived together in complete silence, but when they saw each other needed, when they saw one of the other monks needed help, they wouldn't say anything. They would just maybe call each other with a hand signal, and they would right away go and help, always helping each other with whatever needed to be done. Lifting a log, maybe, or cleaning something up. Building something, fixing something. And they didn't even need to talk to each other because they were so much in concord. They knew right away what needed to be done. And they didn't talk to each other because they wanted to maintain their seclusion. But when we do talk, speech, of course, can be even worse than actions. The pen is mightier than the sword, is the idea. Not just the pen, but speech. You can hurt some words or dag words like arrows, words like daggers. Even though names will never hurt me, like sticks and stones, oh, they can cut to the bone. The way parents treat their children, the way husbands and wives treat each other, friends even. Lying to each other, manipulating each other with speech. None of that makes for harmony or friendship. Anytime we speak, we should think carefully before we speak. Am I doing this out of friendliness? Or am I trying to manipulate or control or dominate this person? Even sometimes in the Dhamma, we say things because we want people to like us, maybe. To, to, um, want to boast, make people look up to us or something. People only look up to you if you're friendly. People don't care how good you are, how bright, how, how, how well you can brag. If you brag about all your accomplishments in the Dhamma or something, or if you pretend to be something, no one wants to hear that. No one wants to. What, what, it, what impresses people is friendliness. How friendly are you? Friendly people are rare and, and special. Monks can be somewhat unfriendly sometimes. Seem unfriendly. I say this because we have to stay somewhat aloof and distant, and that can seem quite unfriendly. So you have to understand what well, the idea of friendliness. Remember these three monks who didn't even talk to each other. Friendliness doesn't mean that you talk a lot or that you act a lot. It doesn't mean that you go out of your way to socialize. The problem is when I say friendliness, when we use the word friendliness, people think immediately of what they normally think of as friendship. Friendship is this rosh, roshous, this uh, rambunctious, uh, joyous, prattling on, this companionship that creates festive feelings of joy and pleasure, joking and laughing. This isn't friendship. This isn't friendliness. Friendliness is thinking of people and thinking of what would be useful and helpful for each other. And what's most useful is for us to, for the most part, leave each other alone and give us the space. Not to uh, bring about sensual enjoyment, where we make each other laugh or smile even, but where we help people to continue on their journey, where we don't interrupt them, we don't bother them with our problems or with our our 
trivialities, no. Telling them about our day and so on. It's not. It's not uh, to to an extent. We get, we have some cordial talk, but to be very careful that we don't spend all our time. Some people, you know, they'll just take long time to tell you about their day and meaningless things, and it's not good for them, and it's not good for the people listening. We have to give each other the space. So these three, with, also with thought, even our thoughts should be friendly. Sometimes we might not speak or act towards each other, but we think of each other with friendliness. And these thoughts, these thoughts show, they, make a, they show how thoughtful we are, that we are thinking of this person. And the way we act and the way we speak depends on our thoughts. And it keeps us from bothering, from interrupting, from disturbing each other. You can tell someone is thoughtful when they don't bother you. No, even just thought leads you. Friendly thoughts, when they stop you from bothering each other, they lead you to think, of, oh, that person, they really are, they really just let me, let me do my thing. No. As opposed to someone who's constantly nagging you and bothering you and looking over you like a teacher who might. Oh, some sometimes if, if a teacher does that, it can be a real disturbance to their to the meditators when a teacher is constantly engaged with the student, watching and nitpicking on everything they do. A teacher should just be able to step back and that and friends as well. We should remind ourselves that we are not each other's parents. We have to give each other the space to make mistakes, the space to learn from our mistakes, and the support to recover from our mistakes. The fourth one is to share. Share our belongings with each other. This one is important in a monastic setting, and you can take it as a sort of a, an example the ultimate example, because for monks we don't we don't collect possessions. Um, we can't go out and buy things. So well, nowadays we have more things than maybe we had in the time of the Buddha, with the electronic things for well for work that we do maybe. But our belongings from a day to day from day to day generally consists of food and basic requisites like toiletries and robes even, medicines. And sometimes it can be hard to obtain these things. Sometimes we might only get enough for ourselves. And In the sutta this morning I wanted to mention in our study group that there's one small word that I think doesn't quite do justice. It's not a big deal, but um, just to point out that it gives an, the Sutta gives an example that even to the extent of one's alms food, even to the extent of the food in one's bowl, and the translation says merely, even merely the alms food, even merely the food in one's bowl, but I don't think that's the correct translation because it's in fact the opposite. The food in your alms bowl is not a mere thing. It's not like, if that's all you've got, then okay, let's share that, but no. It's more like, Sometimes you have just enough food for yourself, and yet even that, even to the extent of the food in your own alms bowl, all the food you have to eat for the day, it's a really good example. It's not merely that. It's even that. Even giving up the things that you really need to live. You know? Sharing. That's a really good example. If we can share the things that are most dear to us, that are most important to us, that's where nobility is. So it's a good example. Being a monk is often often provides you with these sorts of opportunities because you have so little. And so to be able to share it with your fellow monastics is a real real boon. We often face that here as monks. You know, even in this monastery, you know, because it's 
it's quite well supported theoretically but based but because of the monastic life it sometimes we still don't get enough food to eat and so we share today we had to share there was an expectation that there were people bringing food and i don't think they should, they came actually i'm not sure but luckily we got some food from someone else I mean, we have ways and we have support. We're actually quite well supported, but that's not really the monastic way, is to go out of our way to make sure we have enough. Whatever we get, whatever comes to us without us seeking out more, then we're content with that, and we share it. So this morning we shared what food we had. At least three of us did. But the example here is to remind us of of the idea of sharing, the idea of considering each other as important as ourselves. Not considering yourself to be everyone for themselves, right? It's such a horrible such a horrible outlook. Every man, every woman, every child for themselves. That's the way of animals. That's not the way of humans. That's not the way of noble beings. It's not the way of friends. Something to remember to always, always, always think of each other and be considerate and thoughtful and kind, friendly. The fifth is that we have a mutual purity of ethics. Ethics is uh, an essential quality to life, and here we remember we're reminded of how essential it is in determining your association with others. People who are ethical will only be interested in associating with other people who are ethical and likewise with those who are unethical. Unethical people tend to gravitate towards each other, ethical people likewise. Which should concern us, which should be something we find incredibly important. Because if, if we act, speak, think in an unethical way, we're never going to gain that friendship, that trust of those people who are worth befriending, people who are actually friendly, kind, thoughtful, helpful, wise, able to provide that support, that friendship that can support us in our practice. So the way that people live in harmony, true harmony, is very much tied up, very much based on their ability to be ethical. And number six, what the Buddha said was the most important one, is that they have right view together. They, have, they are of the same view this is how religion is formed and how religious communities are formed. Religious communities of all kinds, with right view, wrong view, doesn't matter, are quite a powerful entity, as we all know. Quite a powerful thing. You know, because there's a reassurance that you don't get in ordinary society, a reassurance that the people have are of the same view as you. When you go to church, when you go to a Buddhist monastery, you know that the people there are going to think like you. And that, so that, some might be quite critical of that, that it's quite uh, an echo chamber or a wind tunnel. All you get is your own opinion back. There's no critical thinking, but be that as it may, if and when you have 
convinced yourself and come to a, an appreciation of, a, of the greatness and the rightness of a certain path, when you do have a community that also believes the same things that you do, it can be quite powerful. And that has that can be negative and it can be positive because if it's based on wrong view, well, it can lead to the, you, you're, everybody's doom. But, and I will say say this without any joking or any irony or anything, in the case of Buddhism, we're lucky because in Buddhism we have the truth. Right? Every every religious group claims that we are lucky that we have it. Um, so make that bold claim. Uh, bold because I don't think it's something you have to believe. Not something you have to uh, blindly follow. But it's actually the truth. And there's such a focus on the truth and on investigating the truth and seeing the truth for yourself as opposed to believing someone else that it is right and it is true that Buddhism does have the truth because of its focus, its emphasis, its requirement for the self-realization, direct realization without any sort of belief or uh, taking anything on faith. And because of that, the power that comes from the religious community of having the same views is so much more powerful. It's powerful because there's no dissonance you don't have to have cognitive dissonance. I'm experiencing one thing, but I believe something else, and they're in dissonance. There's none of that. Your beliefs align with reality. Everyone, they align both with all the other people you're associating with and reality. That's so much more powerful than any other kind of belief or companionship. It leads to a greatness of... We shouldn't be afraid of religious community. We should just understand the power of it and how it can be used in the right way if the community is dedicated to the truth and to reality. All right, so I've talked for a while. Those are the six Saraniya Dhamma, six things, if you haven't heard of them, good things to think about, not directly related to actual practice, but very important, and especially with right view, you know, tied quite directly to our practice, but mostly in from a practical perspective, these are a supportive teaching that keep us going as a community and continuing on the right path. So that's the Dhamma. Now we'll take questions if there are any. There are questions. So let's begin. In sitting meditation, should I start right away with raising, falling, sitting, touching? And after touching all the points, should I start again, and so on, until the hour ends? So this is the kind of thing you should probably talk to your teacher about, but um, that's, a, that's a, a specific exercise that's given during a meditation course. And if that's been given to you, rising, not raising, rising, this is an English word that relates to the stomach movement. It's It's only the way we describe it in English. It's not really accurate, but... When the stomach expands, we call that rising, and then falling, when the stomach falls, and sitting, and then touching would be based on, on sending the mind to a specific point on the body just as an exercise to keep the mind flexible and so on, keep the mind busy, keep the mind present. Um, and yeah, that you would go through all those points and then start again. Why do meditation teachers recommend meditators to note more touch points in addition to noting the primary object during meditation? Are there possible dangers of overly focusing on the primary object? I think danger might be a little bit strong, but there are, there are disadvantages. Uh, because having too few objects, once the mind becomes sharp, once the mind becomes uh, well-trained, then it it becomes uh, becomes too easy for the mind, and so the mind is left without a challenge. It's left without anything to keep its attention, and it becomes quite distracted. Like 
a person staying at home doing work. As long as they have work to do at home, they'll stay at home and do the work, but when there's no work to do, they'll go on vacation. The mind, the mind will stay with the present moment as long as there's, you give it something to do. But if it doesn't have enough work to do, it'll get bored and it'll become distracted and go on a vacation. So we give you more work to do. Would you please clarify the doubt relating to the precept of not killing in the case of eating vegetables and taking medicines to kill certain bacteria which doctors can see through the microscope? Yeah, I don't know that bacteria are sentient beings. So it's not about something being living, it's about something being sentient. Because living is, is more of a broad description. Vegetables themselves are alive. But are they sentient? I think the answer is no. Sentience is separate from actual life. And I don't think there's a sense that bacteria are... Bacteria, you can see the difference because they, um, they, they multiply through asexual reproduction. Meaning they, they actually double themselves, right? Uh, one bacteria becomes two bacteria. It's a little bit of a different kind of life. And, I mean, not that that proves by any means conclusively that there's no sentience, but I don't think there's any means by which a bacteria holds a sentient life. You see, the thing is you can never really kill a person. You don't kill the mind of a person. You only disrupt the, the, the course of the mind. You take, it away, you take life away from it force it to move on to something else and that's killing is considered to be the the worst way you can disrupt uh, the the life the course of a of a being's mind and that's why it's a problem it's not actually about um killing right? so if there's no mind involved then there's actually no problem and not all life involves mind i think bacteria falls into that category I'm not, I don't have any proof of that, but that's my understanding of it. The other thing is, you don't actually know, you aren't actually cognizant of a living being. When you kill bacteria, for example, you just have a sense that there's an infection in your body, something wrong you know, with cells. There are different cells, the cells that are uh, native to your body and these bacterial or viral cells that are foreign to your body. But they're all still just cells, and you have a sense that the cells are, the, 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 on a cellular level there is something wrong, and so you fix that with the medicine. You don't have a sense that you're killing a living being, and I don't think you are. The viruses just aren't that, I don't think. Nor, nor bacteria. And otherwise, all of your cells would have to be considered likewise living beings, potentially living beings, which is nonsense, because there's only one living being in this body, right? I mean, there's not really a living being, but there's only one stream of experience in this body, yet there are many living cells, and each cell lives independently and, and multiplies independently. When I do a mistake, I used to think a lot about it, and it's kind of torturing myself. How do I forgive myself? and stop thinking about my mistakes. You don't. You don't forgive yourself. You don't stop thinking about your mistakes. That's. We want to try and forgive ourselves. We want to, of course, stop thinking about your mistakes. But it's not that simple, and it shouldn't be that simple. Don't let yourself off the hook so easily. Be patient and be. Uh, accept the fact that you will have to live with your mistakes, and you might feel bad about them. That's all, all what mindfulness is about. It's about experiencing and going through the experience without trying to fix it, without trying to avoid it, without trying to escape it. Even the bad results of things we've done. You don't have to forgive yourself, you just have to see what you did wrong and learn from your mistake. Learn from your mistake. That's a huge part of life and it's a huge part of insight of mindfulness meditation. Be prepared to 
you have to live with it. Don't try and escape it. Don't try and force yourself to not think of things. You get to the point, I mean, that might sound kind of dreary, but you get to the, the, the point is you get to the point where you let go of it, right? You stop trying to escape it. And you stop letting it get to you. And it no longer bothers you. And you can remember all the bad things you did and just relate them to other people. Yeah, I did all these bad things. I worked through it. I, I no longer blame myself because I've let go of it. Because, you, of course, you start to see that blaming yourself is just useless, adding to the suffering. How does one be more empathetic toward others? I, don't, I think empathy is not what we aim for in Buddhism. Um, and you might be conflating things, because, or maybe not. Some people actually strive to be empathic or empathetic. We try to strive in Buddhism to be sympathetic, which is different. Empathetic means you feel what they feel. And I don't think we should strive to feel what other people feel. If someone's sad, it doesn't help that you feel sad along with them. That's empathy. Sympathy is that you understand, acknowledge, and appreciate the sadness that they have and try to think of ways to better, better their state, to free them from that suffering. So we should be sympathetic. How can you be more sympathetic if, that's the, if you focus on that instead? Um, of course, these ideas of friendliness help to think of other people and to think with friendly thoughts of other people. Mindfulness, of course, helps. But um, it, I wouldn't say that it's something that you have to focus on because ultimately, of course, we can only best help ourselves and the best thing we can do for others is to help ourselves and to make ourselves more pure and more at peace so that we cease to be a source of suffering for others. How can I avoid getting caught up in anger when interacting with others? I have a really insistent ego, and it is so intensely sad and angry. But I always end up justifying the emotion. Well, the fact that you can see that is a great first step. We're not about avoiding in Buddhism. The only way you can ultimately prevent it is to have clarity of mind about it. And that's, so that's not something, there's no shortcut. You have to go through it and you have to see yourself make the mistake of getting angry and you have to see it again and again and more and more clearly until you start to let it go and until you start to change until you start to see that, ah, that's not the right way to be. That's what mindfulness is all about. It's a very simple concept. But it's always going to be in contrast to our, our instinct, which is to avoid, to fix, to run away. It's just how we've always lived our life. That's why we are not enlightened. It's a big reason why we're not enlightened, is because our method of dealing with issues, dealing with experiences, is, is all wrong. We, we mess with things, we try to fix things, we try to control and change and, and dominate our experiences rather than just trying to understand them. In the booklet, you talk about not eating too much or too little. What should we not eat and when, before or after meditation? That doesn't have anything to do with before or after meditation. It means that if you eat too much or if you eat too often, it's a distraction from your practice. Uh, it creates greed, it creates complacency, and of course it has, disturbs the body, creates lethargy in the body, creates heat in the body. Try to eat only a few times a day. I mean, the ideal would be to eat once a day in the morning because you're using all of that energy throughout the day. And then that's it. Oh, you, you freeze you so much because you don't have to think about food for the rest of the day. Freeze your mind. It's not, a, it's not a in essential practice, but it's a very, very useful one. I have no desire to run after money, but my family expects me to do so. What should I do? 
You should be mindful. And you should try to find a way to live your life and to follow your goals in the right direction. You should strive to maintain ethics, focus, and wisdom and to practice the Buddha's teaching. And you should decide for yourself what your direction is, what your goal. Are you going to become a business person? Or are you going to become a monastic? There's nothing wrong with being a business person as long as you do it ethically, mindfully. And if you're not going to become a monk, then you need some sort of livelihood. So try to be simple, find a simple livelihood that doesn't take away your time so that you have no time left for meditation or development of spiritual things. Is a life full of pleasure better than a life full of neutral consciousness? I am afraid of having a boring life from lack of desire and sensation. So desire doesn't lead to pleasure, but fear and boredom certainly take away from it. So you should be more afraid of fear and boredom, because if you got, were got rid of boredom, you'd have a lot more pleasure and a lot more uh, peace. Your fear is is habit forming. It's going to make it. It's going to become worse and worse and worse until you're paranoid, until you're reactionary, and if you are always reacting to boredom in a negative way, your boredom is going to get worse and worse, and you'll have less and less pleasure and happiness. And if you cultivate your desire, the same thing. Desire doesn't lead to happiness. It seems to, but it actually leads you further and further away from happiness. It leads you to need certain experiences to be happy rather than just being at peace and happy. How do you know where to draw the line between being helpful and getting used by others? Can we be resourceful with our own energy without being egoistic? So this is why the this is a good example of why the focus is on cultivating your own mindfulness, your own clarity of mind, instead of focusing on helping others, because you can't find an answer to that from just helping others. You won't get the answer you need. There is no there is no real line. If your goal, if your focus is on helping others, where do you draw the line? It's completely a line in the sand. But if you're focused on being mindful, and if that's your focus, then you'll constantly still come into contact with other people and be put in positions where you are might have to help them. But when your focus is on being mindful, the help will not be your focus. So in two ways, that protects you. One, you aren't, you aren't disturbed when people use you because you're not even thinking about it. You're just thinking about being mindful and you think, okay, Mindfully, I will do this. It involves what might be called helping this person, but this is just the right thing to do. It's kind and thoughtful, so I'll, I'll do that thing. Uh, and and two, because you don't invest yourself in it, that you don't get caught up in their business, and the line is drawn when when they stop uh, pu pulling you, when they stop drawing you in. You don't get caught up in it emotionally. You don't get drawn into their drama. You help them and then you go away. It's it's actually a lot less complicated than it might seem. People don't pull you in if you're very mindful. I mean, to some extent, but not as much as if you get caught up in it. Maybe you get angry. Why are you? You know, why are you? Look, I don't want to. You know, you're, you're you're manipulating me or so on. It just draws you in further, and then you're in an argument, and they try to prove to you that they're not manipulating you, and then you feel guilty, and then you help them more, and so things like that. You know, I mean, it's not, this isn't, this isn't exhaustive. There are, of course, many different types of relationship or ways that people interact with each other. But the only sure way to keep yourself on the right footing is mindfulness. As a beginner in meditation, I find it hard to concentrate and when noting, 
All that rises is negative thoughts. It is sometimes discouraging. How can I deal with this? Well, it's not easy. Meditation is not an easy thing by any means. When you're discouraged, that's just another state, and you should not discourage, discourage. But you should be encouraged that you're seeing the nature of your mind. You should be patient, and you should understand that it doesn't go away if you stop meditating. Meditation isn't making these thoughts arise. Meditation isn't making you distracted, right? It's showing you that. And meditation doesn't require you to be anything other than what you are. So you don't have to be discouraged in the sense of thinking that maybe you're not good at the meditation. There's no such thing as being good at the meditation. There's only, this, there's only the activity of confronting and facing and standing strong in the face of our experiences having a firm grasp on whatever it is that arises. Are we seeing or hearing? Smelling, tasting, feeling. Just see, grasping it as it is. Keeping it in mind. Having a clear perception of it. During meditation, I felt a strange, dark spiritual connection, and things move around my room. Could this just be my imagination? So all, all entities are merely imagination. If someone does walk into your room, the person is just your imagination. We use the word imagination, but imagination, it's not quite accurate. The point is, it's a concept. Uh, it can never be more than a concept. Even if God himself or herself uh, came down and stood in front of you, it would still be just a, an imagination. The reality of it would be the hearing and the seeing and the hear, smelling and the tasting and the feeling and the thinking. So in this case, the only thing that's real there is the feeling. Your interpretation of it as a dark, as being dark and being a connection and being spiritual, even the moving it's just a perception. There really is only the feeling. There's the feeling and then there's your reactions to it, your interpretations of it. That's all that's real. So that's where your focus should be. To, to the point, it, 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 isn't, it isn't consequential whether it's on a, on a conventional level real or imaginary because on an ultimate level it's all imaginary. Whether someone really walks into your room or whether you imagine someone walking into your room, whether you imagine a spirit or there is a spirit, the only reality is the feeling that you have. There is the feeling and that's real. That's all that will ever be real. And, and your reactions to it, your fear of it perhaps. The Noble Eightfold Path, and Buddhist morality in general, a prerequisite to advancing your meditation, or is it something that comes to you naturally as you advance in your practice? So the Eightfold Noble Path is the goal. It really is the ultimate. It's, it's the moment where you're perfect. The Eightfold Noble Path is the qualities of the perfect moment of, of awareness where the mind experiences reality exactly as it is and with perfect clarity. And it's called the path because it's what brings about the next moment, which is the cessation, the cessation of suffering, which is the fruit. So you can, the Eightfold Noble Path, of course, practically is a very good guide for the qualities that are going to be required to have that perfect moment, but are ultimately not something you have to consider during meditation. Through the practice of mindfulness, through the practice of meditation uh, focused on reality, the Eightfold Noble Path will come together by itself and eventually attain that moment where you're on the path and there is the result, which is the experience of cessation.
What does Buddhism have to say for someone who chooses to dedicate a big period of their life to pursuing a craft, sport, or competitive video game? I don't know, this isn't tier one, is it? No. Well, do we have this compassion question? Someone's asking about compassion. Is that on our list? Or did we did that slip through the cracks? That's there is a question is a... sorted into tier two about compassion. I can bring that up next. I think I'm too far down. This one, yeah. This one I think is interesting. Please explain why meditation helps you to create compassion toward others. So I think this is worth focusing on or, or, or understanding because we often look at it the other way around, that maybe compassion would help my meditation, that kindness and friendliness helps your meditation, and it does, that's true. But there's another way to look at it that in fact, the best way to be kind and compassionate is to have a clear mind. Why does meditation help you create compassion? Because compassion is really seen in a negative sense, not negative in a in a, in a a bad way, but negative in the sense of the absence of thing. It's the absence of cruelty. It's the absence of the inclination to hurt others or to discard other people's feelings to ignore other people's feelings. It's the, because it's, it's natural, right? Compassion is a natural state to some extent in, in, in the right way. Now, when people talk about compassion, like the compassion of the Bodhisatta, that's going out of your way to be compassionate. And even the Buddha, when he became enlightened, he realized that really going out of your way is uh, it's just a, a wrong pursuit in the sense that well it's not wrong but it's it's a distraction it's not the real goal because being thinking of others doesn't actually lead to clarity and, and enlightenment but a person who is has a clear mind is going to be free from any sort of selfishness right they're not going to have any needs of their own. Why, why enlightened people are so kind and generous? Because they don't need anything for themselves. If you have no attachment to things, you can be perfectly generous. You can be completely generous. If you have no attachment to self or self-interest, if you have no bias or partiality, then absolutely there's never going to arise any sort of cruelty, uh, even to the extent of discarding people's needs, discounting people's needs, ignoring people's needs, ignoring other people's cries for help, for example. And so you you have no qualms about helping people, but you're not, because it's based on mindfulness and based on wisdom, you're not taken off balance so that you live your life for others, right? You would never live your life for others because you have no desire to, you have no attachment, to no, you don't feel the empathy of sadness when other people are sad. You have no attachment to other people's suffering either. So it keeps a perfect balance. You're never taken off balance. You're never consumed by other people's needs. And so it's perfect. It just is what it is. You are compassionate and kind and friendly and joyous, you appreciate other people's good qualities without any jealousy, and, and you are completely equanimous, you have no partiality, no favoritism, you are perfectly willing to help anyone who needs help. Meditation, so, so looking at it this way, meditation is the perfect, the best catalyst for the cultivation of compassion. And so you can think of them as going hand in hand. Compassion and, and friendliness uh, are support for meditation, but likewise as you continue and progress in your practice of mindfulness, you become more compassionate and more friendly.
Ante, we've crossed the hour and we have a question left in tier one. Do you have time okay. to answer? Mm -hmm. Last week you asked that this topic be made tier one, but I don't think it normally oh. would. Oh, here we go. How can we incline other beings, like a pet, toward Buddhism? Mm -hmm. So here's a big reason why, um, big part of the reason why I, I'm somewhat anti, why I think pets are, are, are a, a problem. And we were talking about children this morning, and it's the same about children. And there's nothing, it's not a condemnation of people who have children or pets. Um, it's not a damnation or anything like that, that you're doomed because you have them. It's just that um, as a as a thing, you know, pets sh are not the best system. It's not the best relationship. And here's why. It's very hard to incline, and not just incline, but it's very hard to bring on board uh, pets because they are beings. You know, I, I give them full um, validation as he beings. These aren't something on a different tier. So, so a pro one problem is people treat pets as though they are somehow lesser, and they aren't. I mean, you could classify them as a lesser being, but they're really not. I mean, we probably all were pets in the past as well. And so, well, in that sense, it's quite disturbing and makes you think, wow, I should really help these people, but... The thing is, there are many, many different kinds of beings, and most kinds of beings are not at all interested in the Dhamma, and that's why they became born as those type of beings. Their mind is not in the right way. And so the real simple issue here is that it's incredibly inefficient, and inefficient is, is putting it mildly. It's, it's a, a waste, a huge time sink. Um, compared to effort you might put into helping human beings. Right? We think of pets as being a lot easier than human beings, but that's only because there's very little you can do for them. We have very low standards. If my cat learns to crap in the right place, in the, in the box, my dog learns to bark and scratch the door to be let out to go to the washroom, boy, what a well-trained dog, right? Or cat. We don't have any any concerns about them killing things or um, you know being lazy and being greedy about food. We're actually quite happy when they gulp down all the food that we give them. Right. So if you were try to bring these beings to some sort of state of purity of mind, I mean I, I can't even fathom how that would happen. The best you could hope for is some basic states of tranquility, which certainly could come about. But those states of tranquility are not incredibly powerful. It might quite possibly help them be born if you are vigilant with it as a human being, but that's all you've accomplished as another human being. Or at the same time, you could have spent your time dealing with beings, human beings, who are really keen, interested, and ready to get on board. We could have a community of beings that are really spiritually pure. It's much more challenging. And it challenges you as well. But it's so much more rewarding. So it's really for me just a matter of the the most the wisest use of your time and, and um the best way to live your life, a way to live your life in such a way that supports your practice and directs you in the right direction. That being said, if you have a pet, there's not much you can do because sometimes we're talking about this, that sometimes you're put in a position where you're, you're obligated to take care of an animal for whatever reason, and there's no sense that you should kill the animal to not have to deal with it, of course, or even discard the animal. So, 
you have to think of it in, as being a very, very limited case, a limited cause. It's not a lost cause, but it's a cause that you can only have a very limited effect on. I'd like to think that there are some ways to keep them, keep animals of various types from engaging in unwholesome activity. If you can help them to appreciate the problem with it, you know, even just mindlessly reminding them, no, no, that's not what we do here. We're not allowed to do that. That's not going to make them understand why they're not allowed to do it, but in the beginning, sometimes it's just important to stop them from doing the things. Maybe putting a bell on a cat, if that works, to keep it from killing animals. If it's unable to, it will start to see the... Uh, it will have to deal with its own mind and its own lack of gratification that having killed something it was desiring to kill. I don't know, I won't uh, spend a lot of time on this. Thank you, Bhante. Those are the end of the questions for today. Okay, thank you all. Good, good group, Some great questions. Thank you all for your appreciation and your attention. I appreciate that so many people come out to hear these things and that we're able to share the teachings that have been passed on to us. May you all have a good week, and we'll be back again next week if we're not dead or sick or if there's not some terrible catastrophe because you never know but our plan and our intention is to come back again next week so thank you all have a good week sadhu sadhu